Hello and welcome to The Heat Seat. I am your host, Sophie Solaria. This is the place you'll get to meet some of the amazing patrons, experts and ambassadors behind the fantastic campaign that is Menopause Mandate. We shall gain insight into these women's female health experiences, from menstruation to menopause, and we'll find out how they dealt with the lows, gain their knowledge and found their path to where they are now. But before that, I want to talk to you about WomanWise. It's a new digital women's healthcare company which promises to change how women experience their menopause. And it's all through knowledge. You see, WomenWise offer personalised menopause support by using at-home testing and extensively analyse your symptoms and lifestyle. This information then creates you a personalised menopause management plan encompassing diet, exercise, hormone support, sleep, stress and loads more besides. It's like you'll hear from these episodes, knowledge is power, and the answers will help you find your way to dealing with it all. So to change the way you experience the menopause, head to womenwise.health and take some control. But now it's time to meet today's guest. Mariella Frostrop is one of the UK's most respected broadcasters and columnists. Her advocacy on gender and social issues have best placed her to chair the Menopause Mandate campaign. And as you will hear from this conversation, her passion for women to be supported through every stage of their life is just inspiring. Indeed, her groundbreaking BBC One documentary, The Truth About Menopause, and best-selling book, Cracking the Menopause, go a long way to helping women understand that phase of their lives. And all this around her own daily radio show on Times Radio. How does she get it all done? Nobody knows. Lucky for me, she had time to talk it through. Let's head to her now. Thank you so much for joining us today to answer all things female health, Mariella. Very nice to be here. I'm not sure if I'm quite the encyclopedia you're looking uh, for, but I'll do my best. Let's go for it. You were born in Norway, is that right? I was. I was born in Norway. We lived there till I was six years old and then we moved to the Republic of Ireland. And so growing up in the in Ireland in the 70s, what kind of sex and female health education did you have there? <laughs> I think the answer would have to be absolutely uh, zero, really. I mean, certainly when it came to outside of the home, I mean, Ireland is a Catholic country. It's changed immeasurably in my lifetime, you know, and now looks like one of the most sort of forward-looking, forward-thinking countries in Europe. But but back in the 1970s, it was none of those things. Um, and it was very much ruled by the church and by a very sort of old-fashioned um, manifestation of the church as well. So it was fire and brimstone and damnation and girls were either Mary Magdalene or the Madonna um, and so I was particularly lucky, I think, because uh, my mum, you know, was already, you know, an, a pretty sort of open-minded person, but had also spent these um, eight years living in Norway. And the Norwegians just have a completely different attitude to sex and feel much more comfortable talking about it. You know, they're much more comfortable um in terms of, you know, nudity and their bodies and, and all of those things. So, you know, some of that had rubbed off on my mum. And so all of my sex education basically came from my mum. Let's talk about how it came from your mum. How was it discussed at home? It wasn't so much that it was discussed in a random way. It was that whenever I had an issue, I, I was able to go to her and kind of ask her advice and... You know, for example, when I was uh, quite a young teenager, 
I had a regular boyfriend uh, for over a year who was older than me and we wanted to have sex. I wanted to have sex with him. That was a complete taboo in Ireland at the time. And certainly, I mean, contraception wasn't even available uh, to, you know, grown women who weren't married. And even to married women, it was questioned because it was considered to be, you know, against the the, the church. So my mum uh, went off to um, a family planning clinic and and got me the pill and fibbed and lied about my age and, and did everything that was necessary in order to make sure that I could have safe sex uh, she her her and my father having you know despite the fact they were split up having come to the conclusion that I was going to do it anyway and <laughs> uh, no matter what they did so the best thing they could do was offer me the sort of tools to to protect myself and you know I don't think there was ever anything really I felt I couldn't asked my mum when it came to sex and relationships. I mean, obviously, we didn't talk about the nitty gritty. And I'm still not sure that information about how to have sex is information you want to get from your parents. You know, I learned like every teenage girl from from girlfriends, trial and error, uh, everything else. I mean, I think your girlfriends are extremely precious to you when you're that age. And I feel sorry for boys, actually, because I think they have a, a, a lot less frank conversations with each other and a lot less informative conversations. You know, it was my friend, um, Jane Golden, who taught me how to use a tampon. You know, those are the sort of rites of passage that I think girls uh, go through together. But you then moved to London as a teenager, right? So what was life like there? Did you learn more about it all? Well, I mean, I was living it all then. So, you know, I was learning, uh, you know, on a day to day basis. You know, I think it was it was more difficult as a as a girl then, because I think a lot of the things that we now feel much more comfortable about talking about were taboos. I mean, I remember being incredibly embarrassed about my periods, you know, and I would pretend I was sick to a boyfriend rather than say it was my period and and not see them until my period was over. I would go to the supermarket and I would hide my tampons underneath a packet of cereal or something uh, because it was just mortifying to be buying tampons. And and when you think about that now and and the the, the long, long history of women being embarrassed about what happens uh, with our bodies, uh, you know, it is certainly one of the things that's kind of fired my campaigning zest. It's just that notion that, um, you know, there's nothing that happens with our bodies that we should be ashamed about or apologetic about. And I think we've still got a really long way to go. But I do feel really happy every time I hear my daughter going, oh, I'm on my period or her friends <laughs> kind of talking very openly and in front of boys as well. You know, it's yeah. not like just amongst themselves. Um, and I, I feel like that is definite uh, progress. But I still feel that a lot of the things that go on in later life are, are perhaps we're, we're still less comfortable with. What about things like fertility? I honestly don't think I really knew about the fertility cycle in any detail at all until far, far later in my life, you know, when I was in my late 30s, very late 30s, and and was trying to conceive rather than trying to avoid conceiving. And it was only then that I kind of discovered about the, the, the certain days a month when you're particularly fertile and the 12 day cycle and all of those things. When it was time to have your children, did you find that difficult? It was quite difficult to conceive. Molly, I had a miscarriage that was absolutely devastating because I was 40 and 41 actually and so it it felt like my last chance had just expired and um, you know it was almost to the three months date 
when I miscarried. And that was just so traumatic. And I'm so pleased that nowadays, you know, companies are slowly waking up to the idea and the work workplaces and the world, frankly, in general, are slowly waking up to the idea that, that women experience grief, intense grief when they lose a, a baby, whether it's an abortion or a miscarriage, you know, that that has, you know, always been one of those things where you're supposed to just grit your teeth, get on with it, carry on life as, as usual. And I certainly didn't feel like carrying on life as usual for, you know, at least a, a couple of months after, after that. But then happily, uh, I got pregnant again, you know, so, so it was a good, you know, just over a year of sort of trying and anyone who's gone through that period will know that the last thing you feel like doing is having sex when it's too prescription, you know, and... But you experienced that whole thing of knowing that actually it wasn't as easy as looking at a man and it happening for you. Yeah. And you started to realise the vulnerability of, of the situation. And actually, I'm sure you couldn't tell many people about that miscarriage because it just wasn't discussed, I'm sure. No, I mean, I, you know, my best friends knew, two of them, um, but that was about yeah. it. I mean, it. Really, even then, you know, and this is only 20 years ago, it just didn't feel like something you, you sort of brought up and, mm. and, 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 and talked about. So it was it was really difficult and it was really scary because I think it's only when you're you know, invested in something like that, that you realise how important mm -hmm. to you it is. I think it's a really interesting phenomenon. And I think it's got a lot to do with how we've failed entirely to include women's fertility journey, if you will. I hate that word, but, you know, I think it applies here, into the contemporary world you know for, for for thousands of years you know we've been kept locked in the domestic sphere because our contribution as the sex who would carry babies and and bring forth the next generation was deemed too imperative to to allow us into the working world and you know now that the horse has definitely bolted on that and women are very much not only a part of the working world but imperative to it and and our unpaid work as well as our paid work is slowly starting to be recognized for the enormous contribution to the economy it is what doesn't seem to have happened is the recognition that the the world as we work in it is entirely based around a patriarchal linear model where you start at the beginning of your career you work your way to the top and then you retire and it is this sort of hopefully if you're lucky you know straight trajectory from the beginning to retirement and of course for fertility reasons for biological reasons that isn't the pattern and almost everything in the working world I think is predicated against equality for women in that situation you know whether it's pensions at the end of your working life that you know you you can work just as hard and just as long but you'll end up with less because you'll have taken time out to raise your children uh, you have the time off during pregnancy and so on paternal leave parental leave yeah still not equal and absolutely you know that is one of the very first things that has to change you know, and then there's all the other conditions that come with our ability to have children, you know, from endometriosis to painful periods to intolerable menopause, you know, all of those things. You know, I spent my entire working life just basically trying to cover up for the fact that I had 
the internal workings of womanhood. I know. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, not a huge amount has changed. I mean, of course, people are more talking more, but there's still a way to go. Now, you do now happily have two teenage children, Molly and Danny. So what do you teach them? That was the other thing. You know, I mean, I had Molly finally at the age of 42. I was just uh, two months shy of my 42nd birthday. And then five months later, we went on a holiday and um, I came back with an intense desire for oily fish uh, and discovered <laughs> you know, three months later that I was pregnant with my son. So, I mean, that's just to say that the the mystery of how your body works and the mystery yeah. of, of how fertility works, you know, remains, I think, uh, heavily under-researched. Well, I don't think they did any investigations in women for such a vast period. There's such a gap now. No, and I think that there's it's it's unexplored, you know, in the medical yeah. world. So about your kids, though, how much do they know about all of this stuff? Do you talk to them about the menopause and periods? And are you very open as a family? Yeah, I mean, I, I think my children have both heard more about menopause than they'll ever need, really. <laughs> so, uh, you know, how they are able to sort of blot out the sound of your voice, you know, because <laughs> it's so busy issuing them instructions morning, noon and night. I feel that every time the word menopause comes up now, I think the two of them just don't even hear it anymore. But but the good thing is that I think both of them are fairly well equipped with knowledge around that topic and, and also hopefully know where they can go and get further information, like my book. Um, I mean, I, I would still argue that how we deal with sex education and, you know, just education about how our bodies work is still not in any way up to scratch in terms of in schools. And I think part of the problem there is that you end up with a very unbalanced kind of level of sex education. You know, if you are lucky enough to come uh, from a home where those are things that are talked about and you feel mm -hmm. comfortable bringing them up, then that's great. But if you're not, I don't think the education system is equipping kids with enough knowledge. And I think the saddest thing of all is that a whole generation of young men and women, but I would definitely argue more young men, are brought up with, with pornography being their main access to sex education because they see pornography before they have conversations or lessons in school about those topics. That's something that we don't accept as a society we seem to be you know like like horses with blinkers basically trying to avoid the reality of what that's creating and I feel really sadly in a way my daughter is growing up in an in a far more objectified and and toxic sexual environment than I did on that level. We could do a whole podcast on that alone, Mariella, but yeah. we are also here to talk about <laughs> menopause. And uh, with regards to your own, do you mind telling us a potted history about your experience? You said you didn't know exactly what was happening to you. But it's not even exactly. I didn't have a clue, I think it's fair to say. And, you know, what's 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 really shocking to me about that is, you know, that I'm a woman who's, you know, spent her whole life campaigning on women's issues. I, I'm a reasonably intelligent, you know, well-educated human being. And yet, you know, I spent two years in my late 40s um, because my menopause came pretty fast on the back of having kids, suffering extreme anxiety and insomnia. And the combination of the two really impacting on my mental health and absolutely oblivious to what was going on. And 
I find that so shocking that, mm. that I had, you know, no information. I had a, you know, that sort of appointment that you do when you're in your early 40s, the NHS invites you to. Menopause wasn't mentioned. How can it be then when, when the one thing that's definitely going to impact on your life in your late 40s and through your 50s is menopause? How can it be that this compulsory uh, appointment doesn't even mention it you know you don't get told about the symptoms to look out for you don't get told about the myriad symptoms I mean the reason I didn't think I was menopausal was a I thought it didn't happen till you were 50 um at least and and secondly um I thought you had hot flushes you didn't have a hot flush and, and I didn't have, I, had, I mean I think I had probably what were two hot flushes over that whole period of two years and you know when you only have two they were memorable enough to make me you know thank the powers greater than mine that I only had two and to feel incredible sympathy for women who I've talked to whose experiences are you know up to 50 of them a day completely you know lives devastated by them but you know it's just to illustrate that I really had no idea what was happening to me and and I was one of the lucky people well I say I had I had health insurance I discovered very quickly that that doesn't cover you for menopause because menopause is natural I failed to conjure up a single medical condition that isn't natural you know unless unless I'm opting for plastic surgery or something you yes, know so absolutely. I don't really understand what the point is there apart from the fact that it again is another way in which medical health systems discriminate against women yeah um, but you know but I had money to eventually go private because I, I tried to you know uncover what was happening to me I was recommended antidepressants but I, I'm not very good with antidepressants they don't really they make me feel blurry and and also I wasn't depressed no. you know I mean that's the thing so many women end up getting prescribed antidepressants and antidepressants do nothing for hormonal turbulence mm -hmm. so you're basically taking something that isn't helping but that actually is having a detrimental impact on other aspects of your health including your ability to have orgasms at a time when women are already feeling like they don't want to have sex and they don't feel sexy if you suddenly can't have an orgasm it just compounds that sense that that you are redundant in, mm. in a way but anyway the long and short of it is eventually I went to a private doctor who did a series of blood tests extremely unhelpful insofar as over a period of sort of four months I was found to be peri then post then not menopausal at all, you know, and at the end of which I kind of, you know, having paid for all these blood tests, I said, look, this isn't, this isn't working really, is it? And and he agreed and went, no, you're right. And then uh, sent me to a rather amazing gynecologist called Sarah Matthews, but again, private, who, you know, within five minutes of me sitting down to talk to her said, of course, you're going through menopause. I mean, I don't need to do a blood test to find out. You've just told me some classic symptoms. You know, they're symptoms that aren't yet taken into consideration by the medical profession as a whole. And um, we're going to sort you out. And the first thing she did was send me for a bone density test, which again is something that women uh, don't get offered and is one of the most imperative reasons to be taking HRT. Everyone thinks we take HRT to, I don't know, have good skin, to look younger, to feel like sex if you're slapping on testosterone or whatever. But it's none of those reasons. It's the things that are happening inside that you don't even know about, yeah. you know, 
when I went to do this bone density test, very reluctantly, because I'd, um, you know, I hadn't slept properly for two years. And I was like, well, who cares about my bone density? I just need to sleep. The test results came back and I was osteopedic, which meant I was on the cusp of osteoporosis. And I would never have known. And I would have turned into those women like my poor mother-in-law who Mm. wasn't given HRT, who every time she trips breaks another bit of her body uh, because she's got, you know, severe osteoporosis as a result of not being given HRT. And there's so many women the same my mum too. She fell with COVID last summer and broke her hip multiple places and it was the same reason no HRT and you know the worst thing about that is that what you end up doing is becoming extremely unfit you know if you break your hip then you can't do any form of exercise you end up becoming more unfit and it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy and it ends up costing the NHS far far more Mm -hmm. than it would do to take preventative, supportive measures for women in their 40s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first step in that has to be when you have that 40-something health consultation that's offered to everyone over 40 in the UK. For women, mm-hmm. it should be about menopause. Exactly right. And so you responded, obviously, quite well to HRT, I'm guessing. I responded really well, so much so, because then I made a documentary for the BBC about um, the science around menopause. And one of the things they, they wanted me to do was a bone density test, um, again, which was about a year and a half later. And I, I wouldn't have been offered in real life, as no. it were, but because <laughs> for the sake of the programme, I was. And, and we discovered that I was right back to normal as a result of, of, of taking HRT for the preceding year and a half and again it's something that women just don't get told and don't get offered and it's so infuriating you know it feels like we're absolutely stuck in the very kind of dark ages of knowledge around women's health and the amount of investment that needs to be done and the amount of training that needs to be done it's all very well training a new generation of GPs but there's a whole preceding generation who will be working you know likely for the next 20 years or so who unfortunately didn't do the full knowledge as they call it with black cab drivers when it comes to menopause and so women are being discriminated against as a result and your hrt prescription was it patched and i know i started out with um everall patches i think it was that you have to change every three days And then I was really bad at doing that. So then they put me on the ones that are are weekly. And then, unfortunately, because I um, have very dry skin, I use a lot of body cream and and Sarah Matthews decided that I wasn't getting the full benefit with the patches. I also hated the patches. Mm. I hated just having one stuck to me. You know, it felt like branding. So happily, I went on to Easter gel and progesterone at night, um, which unfortunately now, of course, uh, with these shortages is barely available. But interestingly, is available across the rest of Europe, but just not in the UK. Anyway, um, and that combination is what works really well for me. I feel liberated by it. You know, if, if my sleep is kind of not going too well um, or I'm getting, a, you know, increased anxiety or anything like that, I just slap a bit more on. And I think one of the things we're not taught is that it's okay to self-medicate like that. Mm. It's okay to do trial and error. You know, we are so much more knowledgeable about what's happening in our bodies than anybody 
else is, quite honestly. Yeah. And it's not a banned substance or an A-class drug. And actually, you know, I think women need to be empowered even more, you know, not in terms of endangering themselves. And obviously, if you've got a family history that suggests you shouldn't be using HRT, then you need to listen to your GP. But I mean, the advice is changing all the time to the point where I do think within the next five years, there will be forms of HRT that you can take even if you have a, a breast cancer history in your family. Let's hope, yeah. yeah. Because that, that, they are the people suffering the most, aren't they? The people, the people that are suffering the most. And, you know, there are supplements that definitely help, but they don't have the same impact. You know, we, we really need to be delving deeper into that subject. You know, I mean, the other thing I recently started taking again, I tried tester gel right in the beginning and I didn't really feel it helped very much, but I, God, I got hairy um, <laughs> in places that I didn't want. That's definitely there. not you. what you want. And actually, I was told the other day that tester gel obviously is formulated for men. Yeah. And right. again, you know, they have a completely different physiognomy. And even though we now know that women, one of the hormones that we lose is testosterone, that women have testosterone too, there still isn't acceptance. You know, it's a postcode lottery if you can get it at all on the NHS. And there isn't acceptance that women need it. And there is no proper formula no. for it for women, unless you're lucky enough to be able to afford to buy the one testosterone uh, that's been developed for women which is called Androfem and, and and comes from Australia you know and is bloody expensive yeah I can imagine look there's no there's no secret or surprise that you're passionate about this stuff and so much so you decided to write a book you teamed up with Alice Smelly to write Cracking the Menopause while keeping yourself together how did it all come about and why did you decide to do it I mean mostly for all the reasons uh, we've talked about I mean it came about because um, we had a little sort of mum's running group when the kids were at uh, school and so we, we used to talk about everything as women do and I was the oldest member of the running group so I was talking about men menopause before any of the others were you know even thinking about it and all like me oblivious uh, to the fact that you know in your early 40s that's actually when this liminal phase starts and um, so we would talk about it a lot and I would talk about my experience and Alice you know with her enormous experience as a health journalist you know we were running along one day and went you know if we don't know about it and if we don't understand it then there is a whole demographic of women out there who are in the same position. Maybe we should write a book that at least explains the basics. So that's how we decided to, to write the book. And, you know, the thing that made me passionate about writing it was, was just my own ignorance. I didn't want my friends who are younger, a lot of them, and certainly not my daughter's generation to grow up with the same sort of black hole when it comes to, you know, what happens to our bodies in mid to later life. What do they say? They say it's extremely insightful, knowledgeable, but also quite funny. So, I, and I, like, <laughs> I do like the humour, the element. Yeah, well, we, we wanted it to be funny because we, yeah. we, we're very cognizant of the fact that there are still an enormous amount of women out there who still feel very uncomfortable. Yeah around this topic, who still feel ashamed and embarrassed about various aspects of what's happening to their bodies through the perimenopausal period, and maybe don't have a network of friends like I was lucky enough to have and access 
to finally a gynecologist who knew what she was talking about. And so we wanted it to be like a kind of companion book where, where it was like talking to a friend. We wanted it to be a little bit of everything. And at the end of it, to empower women to be able to walk into their GP surgery and go, I want this and I want it for these reasons. I know that I'm experiencing menopause for these reasons. We wanted it to be a powerful tool because we felt that women were short on the necessary equipment to do battle. Well, look, Claudia Winkleman says women of all ages should read it. With regards to that, it's actually, as we've touched on, quite important for schools to, fair enough, maybe not use your book, but certainly bring education in. And why not? Let's put your book on the curriculum. It's essential that our younger generations know what they're heading into without scaring them, but just as knowledge, right? I think that the thing that's essential, you know, I mean, I don't think you're going to find many 18-year-olds who want to delve in deeply into it, something that's going to happen when, you know, you're ancient, uh, which is your 40s, you know, to an 18-year-old. But I do think that the entirety of women's biological journey should be covered and that menopause should be given as much space as periods and fertility and all of the things around what are deemed to be women's useful period of um, their biological journey rather than their useless uh, period. I also think that what's really important with young women is not to scare them with the worst aspects of menopause, many of whom won't go through the worst aspects of menopause. I mean, that's the thing. You know, there are lots of women who do go through it, sail through it even, mm-hmm. or who just need, you know, basic minimal support. And it's really important that they learn that they're taught not to fear it and not to see it as an ending, but actually to see it as a new beginning and also a mark of how important women's contribution to society is. You know, we would not have adapted to menopause. There are only a very, very few species, some whales and giraffes, for some weird reason, who actually go through menopause. And for all of the species that do, it's because our contribution to our species post our fertility is deemed to be as imperative to our survival. I mean, society, the humankind survival or or whale survival, uh, as it is in terms of us procreating and bearing children and, you know, bringing up the next generation. And so actually, menopause is a badge of honour for women in order for them to be able to go through this second period of life, this second spring, as the Chinese call it when their contribution to society, both in terms of perhaps helping out with childcare and and so on for their children, you know, for their grandchildren, but also, you know, more women start businesses in their 50s. You know, unfortunately, more women decide to get divorced in their 50s and, and pursue a different kind of lifestyle. It is a period of experiencing freedom and mm-hmm. independence in a way that we don't get all the way through our fertile lives. And that should be held up as an aspirational point in life rather than a dark episode uh, that should be swept under the carpet and not mentioned. Absolutely, Mariella. Look, we're so grateful. I mean, the menopause mandate wouldn't be menopause mandate without you, of course. You are the figurehead of the whole campaign. What are you most proud of? I think in terms of what I'm most proud of, I mean, it's very hard to gauge the impact you've had. But every time a woman comes up to me and says thank you, and that happens an awful lot, that is such an incredible 
sense to have that you've made some sort of impact to strangers' lives. When I look around on Menopause Mandate's birthday or at those meetings in Parliament with the Women and Equalities Committee and just see these incredible women all committed and working together for change in a really positive way. I feel like it's one of the best manifestations of feminism. And also the amount of men who have got involved, who've expressed interest, who ask me on a daily basis again, how they can support their partners through menopause. It just feels like there's been a seismic societal shift and that we were at the very, very beginning of it, you know. All my life, I've, I've, I've had a big mouth and I've always said what I thought. And, you know, sometimes that isn't the best thing. But I think when it comes to menopause, if it wasn't for the fact that I'm pretty shameless mm-hmm. and prepared to speak my mind, I think we might not have seen some of the positive change that we have. And so it makes me feel a bit better about being the person that I am as well. You're entirely right. It needed to be shouted. And what are you going to shout about next? What do you want to see tackled as a priority? For me, I think there is no greater priority. You know, now that we are an absolute imperative part of working life, the world economy relies 50% on women's contribution. I think working out a way in which we can create a female-shaped space in the working world, that is the most important thing. I've been thinking a lot about things like pensions. You know, the reason we're discriminated against with pensions is because we stop making contributions uh, when we're going through our procreative years. Why isn't there a partnership pension? In the same way as you take a joint mortgage with someone and we don't think twice about doing that, why isn't there a partnership pension that basically means that you both pay into it, sometimes one of you is earning more, sometimes one of you is earning less. What you do is you look at it as a lifelong commitment in the same way as your mortgage is. But let's say you do split up, you absolutely divide it equally at whatever point that that happens. And that means that completely obliterates one aspect of financial discrimination in women's lives. There are so many burning questions. And I feel that most of them have got pretty simple answers once we apply our creativity and determination to them. So that's what I want to do next. Why do I feel like saying hallelujah when you talk? You know? <laughs> like we're in a church, like a female, all-female church talking about menopause with a huge vagina at the front. Yes, yes, a beautiful big vagina hanging up just on a screen behind <laughs> us. How gorgeous it would be. <laughs> we're going to end this podcast by asking each guest to choose their favourite song from the Menopause Mandate Hot 100 playlist, which can be found on Spotify. What is your favourite song from that playlist, Mariella, and why? Well, that is really difficult. First of all, because I just think the playlist itself is so absolutely brilliant, the way it spells out menopause. And then there's so many uh, great songs on there, but I am a lifelong Leonard Cohen fan. And so I have to go for him. I I, I love this song because of, because it's him at his sort of raspy, you know, macho best. But also because he has an album and a song called Death of a Ladies Man. And I think, you know, he was a notorious sort of lady killer in his day. And I think the idea that he's included on the menopause mix, I think it would amuse him. He was the soundtrack to my youth and it amuses me no end. And it's a great track. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being so honest. And thank you for raising so much awareness. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. It was great to talk to you, Sophie. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast with Mariella Frostrop. What I personally took from this episode was a real sense of empowerment. I'm sure you'll agree, Mariella has a way of flaring the fire in your belly to fight change. To find out more about her and the great work she does for Menopause Mandate, do head to menopausemandate.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we would love to hear from you. If you have a comment, question, suggestion for any of the people I'm going to talk to in this series, please do get in touch with us. Email theheatseat at menopausemandate.com. What would you like to hear more of? Let me know. Plus, if you like what we're doing, please give it a good review and, of course, share it with your friends and family. As I always say, knowledge is power, and if you know what you're dealing with, you can make a plan. Another way to gain knowledge is to listen to the experts. That's why we at Menopause Mandate love Let's All Talk Menopause. Let's All Talk Menopause is a webinar platform. They run regular sessions with leading menopause experts, covering everything you need to know about your menopause. Plus, you get the chance to ask the experts your questions. You can subscribe for as little as £5 a month or £50 a year. And if you quote MM at checkout, you can get 20% off your annual subscription. So come and join me, plus the thousands of other happy subscribers who have discovered Let's All Talk Menopause. Finally, thank you for being here today. Until next time, take care.